1: Welcome in. This is the Tuesday Not So Deep Dive episode on Chit Chat Money. If you are listening to this, that means you are a CCM Plus subscriber. So thank you to the few that have started out with us. Uh, If uh, this is just a bit of housekeeping here, if you are not receiving your uh, newsletter that goes along with this episode that has the research notes, Metrics, charts, and a link to all our valuation work and notes in our Google Drive folder. Either it is in your spam folder or we have not signed you up. And if you're not getting it, um, email us at the email in the show notes and we'll get that sorted out. Because I know sometimes maybe someone will slip through the cracks, but that's all the housekeeping stuff we to have today. We're no, ads. No, no
0: ads. No ads. That, that's
1: exactly true. That is also the benefit. Ad free. Of, yes, that is the benefit of the subscription model. No ads for these episodes. And we're talking Warby Parker. If anyone doesn't know, it is a glasses company. Uh, New Age, DTC, as Brian will talk about in the what they do section and the history. They uh Uh, They got a lot of good definitions for themselves, right? I guess that's a segue to the, what they do.
0: Yeah. Uh, According to the first line of their 10 K, they say Warby Parker is a mission driven lifestyle brand that operates as the intersection of design, technology, healthcare, and social enterprise. And I, I I mean, they literally sell glasses. Um, that is the, that's the crux of their business. Uh, And contacts and contacts. Contacts are 2% of their revenue. So, um, yeah, they sell contacts as well, but, you know, they sell eye care solutions, but I, I don't know why they have to have that that long, unnecessary definition for what they do. Um, basically, they operate an omni-channel model that sells a variety of eyewear products. You alluded to it, um, anywhere from prescription eyeglasses to sunglasses or even contacts. They also provide eye exams, which I'll talk about in a second, and they, are, they cut out the middleman as opposed to the traditional eyewear, um, I eye I, I care, eyewear I industry, you, you have a lot of the brands that choose third-party retailers. So think, um, what's a good competitor here? So uh, the
1: retailer around where we are located, Sunglass Hut seems to be kind of a big one. And there's also, you could say, Costco. Right. And basically anywhere where it's like a glasses store, but they're not, you know, the people making the glasses themselves.
0: Yeah. And so Warby Parker goes direct to consumer. They've cut out that middleman. And so they're able to sell their items at a discount to almost all of their competitors, other than maybe some of the really cheap products. Um, and they design their glasses at the New York City headquarters. So they have a headquarters based in New York City. And then they have contracted manufacturing and logistics partners all throughout the supply chain, various different partners. Um to kind of do the shipping and building for them of those products. So they are primarily a design, a glasses design and, and selling firm. Uh, and then there, there's basically two ways you can buy, there's online and then there's in person. So online, uh, you can either use Warby Parker's website, which is warbyparker.com. You can use the mobile app and customers can easily browse and purchase their eye care solutions from there. Um, and then to ease the burden of buying online, Warby Parker offers free at-home try-ons. So they'll ship you a box. You can try it on or you can, and you can send it back or you can keep it. Think sort of like a stitch fix model in that sense. Um, and then there's also virtual try-ons where they're working on this sort of this uh, AR solution where you can kind of try on the glasses with the mobile app. Did you test it out?
1: I didn't test it out. The commercials seem very cool. Uh, It looks like it worked extremely well. And that seems, I don't know, interesting product. However, it's like a totally different, they had to get some augmented reality stuff correct. So it's like a totally different, even business and R&D they got to go through.
0: Yeah. And then on the, uh, customers can also on the online side, receive virtual vision tests, uh, and receive prescriptions that way. So they have that sort of telehealth offering, but as for the in-person part of their business, Warby Parker has a 169 physical company owned retail location. So no franchisees in this model. Um, and they're scattered across the U S with, I think there's three stores based in Canada, but I think it's 37 states uh, that they operate in. And the majority of these stores, Warby Parker actually has hired optometrists uh, to help conduct in-person eye exams for customers. Um, the, that really helps. and That's my future growth opportunity. It helps convert uh, more glasses sales. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say, the retail locations and, and the founders on a podcast with a, uh, Guy Raz, the How I Built This, talked about this advantage of having retail locations also serve as a good marketing and brand building tool. So, in places where they have retail locations, they saw their e-commerce sales or their online sales uh, grow as well. So it kind of has that marketing effect uh, of having a physical uh, mm-hmm. physical location.
1: That's- kind of like the similar similar to the very successful what you it? I mean, not all of them are DTC or online native, but the similar apparel brands that have Lululemon found a lot of success with of. Omnichannel. Um, yeah. Lululemon, Abercrombie and Fitch, I guess would be another one that's had success lately. I don't, I always forget the industry because I don't know any of the brands, but yeah.
0: I think that am I forgetting anything on, in terms of the business partners that cover most of it? It's, well, uh, it was a 60%, maybe it was 65% retail uh, 65% of sales came from retail and I think it was 35 online and then it flipped during COVID uh, and has since reverted back a bit.
1: Yeah. Did you talk about they're exploring insurance? There's a lot of place, there's a lot of categories they're exploring. Um, And I guess uh, maybe we should also mention that they have like optometrists, like you said, in the stores, but not all of them have them. So they're really trying to, and there's some local regulations and stuff like that to get, Basically the eye exam people, I know everyone who wears glasses knows way how much this works better than me, but both of us, I don't think wear glasses or contacts. So I don't know the exact details of how it works, but basically you want a lot of people want that eye doctor there and then they're going to buy it right after. So they really want to get all these doctors or just care providers in the stores um, because that can give them without that, it, it hurts them versus say, a traditional one that has that.
0: Right. And in terms of history, Warbury Parker was started by four friends, so Neil Blumenthal, Dave Gilboa, Andy Hunt, and Jeff Rader. And they were all attending the Wharton School of Business at the time. Uh, and the the idea was a the founders tell kind of this funny story where they used to lose their glasses all the time and it was very costly to replace, sometimes $500 for a pair of glasses. And so they were all kind of complaining about this and they were wondering why it's so expensive. And they figured out that most of the eyewear brands were all owned by Luxottica. And that was sort of the, epiph- it sounded like they were pretty. Entrepreneurial people, they had gone to work, they came back to study at Wharton and they wanted some sort of a business idea. And this is what they came across. Um, and so they thought it was a market that was easy to disrupt. They pitched it in a business class competition. I think they failed or they came in second, it went to the semifinals, I think is what it was. And they ended up starting the company with all, pretty much all their own money $120,000 altogether. Uh, and th- that money gave them enough funds to hire a manufacturing partner who they had to pay up front. Uh, most of it was paid up front. And then they also hired a PR firm, which ended up being a very good choice on their part to kind of get the word out about their brand. They, uh, and they, they talked about how they used to consult with all their professors about best ways to go about it and ask them for kind of guidance. And so the model was initially entirely online. Uh, And the glasses costed, I think it was $95 at the start. Still, that's their base cost today, the lowest cost. And then the PR firm got them featured in GQ and Vogue magazines. And apparently that was sort of the big launch. They knew they were going to be featured in that. And as soon as those hit... sales started to roll in and they sold through all their inventory really quickly. Um, But the the demand from that allowed them to raise several more rounds uh, of funding from there. And they continuously raised money uh, from there on out. By 2015, the company was valued at $1.2 billion. And in 2020, the company raised a series F And Series G, yes, that's right. Series G uh, private funding round at valuing them at $3 billion. Um, They went public a year later. So almost a year ago now, September 2021, uh, at the time of this recording, via a direct listing. And so despite the 2020 private valuation of $3 billion, today the market cap sits around 1.4. So Hey, once they get this, we'll
1: talk about SBC stock-based compensation later, that market cap could creep back up to $3 million uh, just in that alone.
0: But it's, uh, yeah, they. I mean, they are, it's been basically knocked down, what, 80%?
1: Yeah. I mean, the there's not any IPO that is not affected because I think the IPO market is trailing, I haven't checked the numbers recently, but trailing the S&P 500 which is also down like 20%. It's trailing it by like 30% in the last year or so. So yeah, it's not surprising that they're down. uh, What are they? 77.6% all time. So really tough start for them. But hey, who knows? That means their IPO. Well, I guess they didn't raise money. Eh, It would have been better if they raised money at that high price. But I'll move into industry and landscape. As you alluded to, kind of interesting. And there are some unique things that investors should know about. First though, Uh, I should note that the majority of these metrics and estimates are from Warby Parker themselves. So again, they're probably right because it's an easy industry to estimate, but they might be a bit optimistic. So the US eyewear market is valued at $44 billion a year. This is the US and Canada. Um, They are the only countries Warby Parker says they're going to focus on for a long time. They actually had this asked at their analyst day. They had a strange Q&A session because they didn't do um, Q&A with analysts. They did Q&A with their IR team, which, you know, those are preloaded and, you know, it's coming. So they're very boring, but they did ask about that, which I thought was nice. And they said international expansion is not on the docket basically at all. Not, I mean, not at all, but, you know, for five years, at least something like that. Now, the global eyewear market is valued at about $160 billion. So I guess if eventually they go international, there is a large market opportunity, and it has been growing steadily for decades. And the reason is, as countries generally have gotten richer, more people have the freedom and the money to focus on things like getting glasses. Now, according to the 2021 10K, only 8% of the eyeglass market is e-commerce right now, and that is likely because... Like Ryan mentioned, people like to go into the stores, even people with Warby Parker go into the stores a lot. So it really is an omnichannel model because a lot of people like, you know, in-person try-on, in-person vision tests, all that good stuff. The vision insurance market, which I'm not sure if that's included in the global eyewear market, but either way, I think it's important to look at here. That is valued at $54 billion. And that is according to IBIS world. Um, this is a market that Warby Parker wants to go after long term but it's not the key part of their model. I think they kind of want to have that as an add-on maybe. Um, they've talked about it. I haven't seen any good numbers from them, but again, they talk about it. So definitely something to note. So if we go to competitors, there are two huge ones, and that is Essilor Luxottica, like Ryan mentioned before, and VSP. So EL, as I'll call Luxottica, owns brand lenses like its namesake one, uh, Ray-Bans, kodak lenses transition lenses and many many others it also sells a lot of equipment to optometrists sells and it also sells uh brands like ray-bans like okay so there's i guess a bunch of different categories within these so there's like the lenses part and then the actual glasses and they own uh So, like, they you know they sell Oakley and stuff like that for the actual glasses, and these might be sunglasses versus eyewear, so they compete in both markets. I guess Warby Parker really doesn't compete in sunglasses. But lastly, and this is an important one, they own tons of retail shops like Sunglass Hut and Vision Direct and many, many others. So this is the legacy player that Warby Parker talks about. And while XSLR, I don't know how to say the name, EL is not technically vertically integrated because they own all these separate companies. They can't, Warby Parker is trying to repeat a lot of what they're doing within their sole brand with this vertically integrated model. Um, if that makes sense, and yeah, they're the one that really Warby Parker is constantly talking about, or you know, indirectly without saying the name. And then VSP is important because they are a global vision care provider with over 85 million members. Long-term, Warby Parker wants to disrupt them with its vertically integrated model. And again, even while they don't have I don't even know if Warby Parker is going to go directly with the vision insurance because, you know, it's a whole new market, stuff like that, but they have talked about partnering. Um, They just partnered with blue health, uh, blue Blue Cross, Blue cross blue shield, excuse me. Yes. For federal government employees. So it's really important because people get that discount. They don't have to pay those, you know, full prices for their eyewear if they're on this insurance, getting to partner or even doing it themselves can be a huge advantage. And that's something that worried Parker's gonna have to go after. So to sum up the industry part, there are just a few unique things versus just selling, say, regular sunglasses, selling apparel, selling shoes, anything else online, eyeglasses have some specific things, which you know makes sense because they're prescriptions. All right, management and ownership. This one, I, I guess this was a fun one to study, but also probably the most disappointing section because I liked a lot of else about this business. They have co-CEOs, David Gilboa, uh, I think it's Gilbao or Gilboa, and Neil Blumenthal. These guys were both founders of the company. In 2021, they each got a $450,000 base salary, close to $100 million in stock grants, and $3.5 million in options, and that's each of them. And now the $100 million in stock grants was based on... Um, a long-term stock grant plan, uh, similar to, I guess we've seen that with Tesla, you've seen that with Dropbox, a few other companies, and it's getting much more common now. And basically, if Warwick Parker's stock hits, its first tranche is $47.75 a share, and then the upper tranche is $103 a share, if they hit these for, say, you know, a certain time period, they are going to get these stock grants released to them,
0: Um yeah, million dollars well, worth, which is a decent chunk of their revenue.
1: Well, uh, yes,
0: it is. But and if if they hit those tranches, it doubtfully would be. Yeah, uh, yeah, they would have to hit certain incentives, I imagine. Right. Um. What do you mean, like? Uh, like, if they get to the let's say it gets to $100 a share, I imagine it's going to be a smaller percentage. That that options payout would be a smaller percentage of revenue, I would think.
1: Yeah, most likely. And Ryan is saying that because the current stock price is $12.20. So a lot lower, uh, but still just, uh, I thought that was a big thing to look on. Um, If we look at the CFO, his name is Steve Miller, and he has been with the company basically since the inception. So not really a founder, but pretty close to it. And in 2021, he got $5.9 million in total compensation. Uh, they are pretty, you know, they like paying people well. And then we also have Jeffrey Rader as a co-founder. He is on the board of directors, uh, but he left actually to start Harry's, which people know about, sizable CPG business. Um, outside of a member from General Catalyst, which is a VC company, it looks like all of the board of directors are Basically made up of mercenaries, which are just not random people, but people that sit on a lot of boards. I remember there was someone from the Harvard Business School, people that uh, maybe were retired business leaders, uh, stuff like that. And that you know that's excluding the executive team because I don't really count those when looking at you know independent directors. And then. If we look at compensation for the board, some members of the board of directors are getting paid $800,000 to $1 million a year. That's that's so ridiculous. That is very, very high. Uh, For what? uh, Well, (laughs) the compensation committee. So, yeah, they're paying the board of directors extremely well. Typically, it's much lower for a company this size. It's probably closer to $100,000 typically. Uh, They're getting
0: paid millions in compensation to comprise the compensation committee.
1: Well, no, I mean, yeah, it's not there. It's not to set theirs. It's to set the executive compensation, which, you know, that's been pretty healthy. Uh, There were, and this isn't even before I get to the yellow flag. So there were three yellow flags that I saw. And that basically when I say yellow flag, it's not, it's like something that concerned me when looking at the proxy statement. First yellow flag Annual bonuses are based on revenue and adjusted EBITDA targets. I don't like that because I, you know, we've talked about it plenty of times on this show. When your target is adjusted EBITDA, that disaligns you or misaligns you, excuse me, from creating true long-term shareholder value. Second, the huge stock grants uh, went to executives that, and this is important, already have skin in the game. So if you look at our shareholder table here. Uh, Blumenthal has 6.4% of the shares outstanding, and Gilbao has 8.1% of the shares outstanding. I think it's Gilboa. Gilboa? I, I don't know. Bilbao? Isn't Bilbao spelled like? Bilbao's is A-O. Oh, it's A-O. Okay. Okay. Gilboa. Gilboa. All right. Uh, uh, they, you know, like I said, they, they both have more than 5% of the company, so they already have a lot of skin in the game. I don't like when they're basically giving themselves – more stock because there's a you know you're supposed to use these long-term stock awards basically for mercenary CEOs who don't have any stock to get them aligned with shareholders. Blumenthal and Gilboa are already aligned. And then the last yellow flag I had was Blumenthal and Gilboa seem to have started a venture capital firm together back in 2019. That's Both, a red flag, not a yellow. Flag. You don't think that's a you think that's a red flag?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's those are. What the co CEOs, right? Yeah, that's ridiculous. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, it's it's not a good look. The now we have the the excuse me the stock ownership table, which uh, I've been making putting together for the newsletter, so you'll be able to read this once you get the newsletter sent to the inbox. Uh, but the big takeaways I have from that, because I don't want to just read off everything, is that Blumenthal and Gilboa have a lock on voting power combined. they are over fifty percent. Second big takeaway, most of the A shares uh, of the common stock are tied up with either venture capital or venture capital style public investing firms like Bally Gifford. Uh, If we look on here, we got T. Rowe Price, D1 Capital, Durable Capital, FRM, General Catalyst, Bally Gifford. And then lastly, the company gives out healthy, like we've talked about, compensation to both executives and the board of directors. I don't think we have to go any farther on that. Ryan, do you want to hit earnings?
0: Yeah. So I'll I'll, I'll try to give the way I'm going to do this from now and I'll give the last 12 months to kind of paint a broader picture and then try to specify it by coming into the most recent quarter. So last 12 months, they generated $555 million in revenue. I believe they're guiding to $650 million for the full year, this this current full year, Uh, but that's kind of top line. And then they have 58% gross margins uh, and they are quite unprofitable. As for the most recent quarter, revenue was 153 million, and that grew 10 percent year over year. They had, and I have some quotes, 15 million dollars in estimated lost sales due to Omicron. I don't know how they estimate that. They, they said well, that Omicron affected their. I mean. they, they said Omicron affected their retail sales.
1: I, I apparently uh, at the start of uh, around the new year is when a lot of people do these things, so it was just really bad timing. They have a bump kind of during the new year.
0: Yeah. Anyway, so they. They thought that revenue should have been a little higher than it was. Um, And then they had active customers increase by 18% year over year. So 2.23 million active customers in total. They have had really steady growth with that active customer base. And then they opened eight new stores during the quarter. So total store count reached 169. That's up 26% over the last year. They said in the next year, they're expecting to open, I want 40, I believe, new stores. Um, So that is really a pillar of their... Multi-channel model It is not just a pure e-commerce business. And then, as for cash flow, they had negative ten point three million dollars in operating cash flow. However, they are expanding store count, right? So there's going to be a lot of purchases of property and equipment. So sixteen million dollars in purchases of property and equipment that came out to negative twenty seven million dollars in free cash flow. I believe their adjusted EBITDA figure was break even. So yeah, it shows healthy. the discrepancy.
1: And this is not even considering SBC, which like we've talked about, they do, you know, pretty wildly. So,
0: yeah. yeah. The balance sheet, the good thing about having a big venture capital-backed business, the balance sheet is typically pretty easy to read. So, uh, Warby Parker has $230.3 million in cash and cash equivalents and no true debt. They do have a lot of lease liabilities for their stores and as well as headquarters. And then they've got some, uh, I believe they call them laboratories. Optical oh, yeah, laboratories? Yeah,
1: they got weird names for stuff, sort of like um, like a Tesla might, you know, they they, they, they name stuff strangely. But yeah, I I forgot what they're they kept referencing laboratories. And I was like, what are we <laughs> what are yeah. we even talking about here?
0: The we don't include that in our enterprise value calculation. I think most investors don't. Um from a quick search, lease liabilities in bankruptcy get are basically it goes to litigation as to whether or not they're voided yeah. so and it's
1: operating so it's operating right it's not finance
0: yeah and so we we exclude that from the enterprise value so it's really 230 million dollars of pure net cash the inventory hasn't increased too much over the last year which I thought was a pretty good sign and then just just for context they burned through 95 million dollars in cash over the last year so based on their current Net cash position, that's about two and a half years of runway if they kept that burn rate.
1: Yep. And then with kind of COVID in their market, you know, the US, COVID really, no one really cares anymore about it. If this is kind of, they basically have two years to prove that they can generate positive cash flow, I would say, or at least consistently now that COVID's in the rearview mirror. All right. Valuation, this is another quick one. Uh, market cap $1.4 billion, ticker WRBY, pretty easy one to look up. Um, the technical enterprise value is going to be below the market cap here. But since, like Ryan mentioned, they are cash burning, I'm going to be using say price to whatever ratios because you know the cash on the balance sheet is probably going to use up. It's not going to be able to be paid out to shareholders. So why should I subtract it out? Now, three ratios I'm using here, and that is price to sales, which is at 2.5, price to gross profit, which is at 4.3. And then price to operating income, assuming they had a 10% operating margin, which I just wanted to put in there to kind of get a read on what their you know, what their valuation could look like. I think it's best to do that when you have an unprofitable company like this. And their price to operating income, if they had a 10% margin, is 25. You can kind of guess that price to sales uh, times 10. Now, importantly, we mentioned the SBC. Let's put some numbers to that. They have 11.4 million potentially dilutive securities outstanding or 10% of the current shares outstanding, given management's tendency to use stock as their form of compensation. I would estimate, or maybe if I was modeling this, and I guess we will be doing that for the bull and bear cases, I'd probably estimate 3% to 5% share dilution going forward to be safe. Uh, We don't know if they're gonna change their tone on this, but most likely with companies, they kind of have the same philosophy. All right, anecdotal evidence. Ryan, what
0: do you got? I'm not a glasses wearer. However, yeah, both of us don't. We don't have prescriptions, but neither of I us, right? did see someone wearing sun their sunglasses yesterday. And actually, the name kind of got brought up. Which is like, oh, this Warby Parker kind of thing. And they did look pretty cool. Um, they're sleek-looking glasses, I guess. Like, you could mistake them for Ray-Bans, honestly. At least the sunglasses por- uh, portion. But the, I mean, the majority of their revenue, I'm guessing it's primarily uh, eyeglasses, like prescription eyeglasses.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It looks like they just copied Ray-Bans. Yeah. Design's a huge part of their philosophy. That's a lot where a lot of their R&D is going. Um, And I guess it's important because it's going to be on someone's face. If it looks like Ray-Bans and it's cheaper, I guess it's... (laughs) And they're still high quality. Like uh, my anecdotal evidence is if I needed the service of glasses, I guess I'll call it, I would hundred percent go to them if after researching this company, because you're going to have the discount and they have high quality products. Um, Also, I had, this is not real, but I wonder if all their employees are required to need glasses because at the analyst day, they had like 15 different employees come up and talk and every single one needed glasses. So I don't know if they're faking this or they're discriminatory against people who don't need glasses, but I found that very, very
0: uh, comedic. Yeah. Something I'll also mention, and this is not anecdotal evidence, it's going back to an earlier point you made about the stock-based compensation. On the latest conference call, they said that optometrists, so basically, I don't want to get this wrong, but I believe it's eye doctors, um, like coming to Warby Parker or working for Warby Parker because of the mission and in quotes, the compensation package that they get. I'm wondering if a lot of the stock comp goes to optometrists.
1: Oh, well, yeah, that could be good. Also, they need them. Eye care professionals. Yeah, eye care professionals. Yeah. uh, Well, they definitely need them to to switch. So if they got to pay them a lot, that might be the price of doing business. All right. Future growth opportunities. What do you have for us?
0: yes i've got two so the first one is retrofitting existing stores to be able to serve eye exams um right now 115 of their 169 stores offer eye exams and they've got a quote or i've got a quote here from the conference call it says 70 percent of glasses wearers purchase glasses from the same place they get their eye exam so they are trying to add these to as much storage as they possibly can. I believe there's regulations around whether or not they can. Yeah, there's them. some workaround.
1: We don't need to get the details here, but they're trying to get some workarounds. Like, I don't even know if it's like a licensing the optometrist or something like that.
0: But yeah. Right. And so just having it reduces the hurdle to transact, I would imagine, for a lot of these or purchase for a lot of these glasses wearers to just be able to go in, get your eye exam, and then instantly uh, have products offered to you. The other, th- the other future growth opportunity I have is expanding the in-network insurance relationship. So this is another thing they talked about and they added Blue Cross Blue Shield, the government employees segment of that uh, this quarter. But even if glasses are still cheaper out of network, I think a lot of people want to use their insurance benefits, or feel comfortable using their insurance benefits. So being able to include more and more insurance partners or vision, I think it's vision insurance partners uh, should over time add more customers.
1: Yep, And it'll make worry Parker even cheaper than the competition. Correct. Uh, and I guess another note is that that insurance aspect is kind of what has made the legacy players so sticky because as we know, when people are stuck with their insurance, uh, there's just switching costs and it creates a whole ecosystem that, like we've talked about Warby Parker's trying to break or build their own with a cheaper model. Uh, mine is, I took the easy one, and this is kind of just well, probably the most important future growth opportunity opportunity to track, and that is opening more stores across the nation. Like Ryan mentioned, they currently have 169, and management believes they can get close to 1,000 um, in North America. Now, according to the company, Again, Ryan mentioned this earlier stores greatly accelerate market share gains in these new markets. They serve as free advertising and they retain higher paying customers. So it makes a lot of sense for them to try to gain store count like, you know, 40 to 50 a year if they have the cash to do so, because um, a lot of people prefer stuff in person here. Even if they have a sweet virtual try on stuff and uh, virtual eye exams, you might like to just do this in person. Um, so I think these are really, really important and especially with the retrofitting, these are kind of easy, uh, opportunities to go after because they have the proven model. You open a store in another place. It is likely that it's going to do well because, uh, you know, people wear glasses everywhere. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Highlights and lowlights, Brian, what are your highlights and what are your low lights?
0: Highlights? Uh, the glasses look cool. Um, I know that might sound like a joke, but I think Warby Parker has found pretty solid product market fit. Uh, People like the glasses. The brand has kind of stuck. It's
1: good. It's a good brand. Or is it because all of their models that wear the glasses are super attractive? Uh, That helps helps as well.
0: Yeah. uh, Very easily could be that. And I do believe that something they talk about is that they're that word of mouth drives a lot of new sales for them. I I, I believe that claim. And so that's a highlight for me. Uh, the other one is the pivot to a multi-channel model seems to be helping drive overall sales. I like that they weren't stuck in the... So Stitch Fix, for example, has a model that they are going to do solely online. They're going to ship you your fix. And for anyone that doesn't know Stitch Fix, it's like solely online retail for apparel. Um th- I like that they made the shift and recognized that we can be sort of a multi channel business and that the multi channel is going to help drive uh, e commerce sales as well. So I like that. Low lights for me. I've got a lot, uh, primarily around management. Uh, I think the company is still being run very much like a venture capital business. Um,
1: Maybe not after the stock drop,
0: but we'll see. Yeah. And there are a lot of red flags. I encourage everyone to go listen to the interview on how I built this. I think there's red flag, red flags with management kind of, it, it feels like, uh, Oh, we already made this. Like we already made it. We're, we're very successful. We've made it. And it's not this focus there. There does not seem to be a focus on driving value from here for minority shareholders.
1: Do you want to talk about the charity stuff as well? Uh, because
0: I don't think we've hit on that at all. It is. So this is a uh, public benefit corporation. I don't know exactly what all that entails, but um, it requires, I mean, they are going to be donating a lot. I believe they donate a pair of glasses for every glass, every pair of glasses sold.
1: Yeah. And they're giving like 1% of their shares to the Warby Parker foundation. I think the big takeaway for investors is that they may be focused on um, this charity stuff a lot. And again, like, That's great for society, but it's the, 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 that capital. glasses wearing society. Yeah. Well, sure. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of extremely poor people that need these glasses in emerging markets, but again, it's the, the, the dollars go somewhere. It's not going to use a shareholder.
0: It's just something to watch out for. Yeah. And I sound like a grump saying that, but if you want to be uh, a philanthropist, if you want to be very charitable, with your own money, it doesn't start with giving it away uh, or it doesn't start with losing it in stock returns. So the, the point is, if, we, if you're trying to accumulate money, you probably want good stock returns and I, I don't think, that, that not to not to get too far ahead, but if they're giving that away, it's not coming to you as a shareholder. So yeah, it's kind of just priorities for them. The other thing, I do not like their use of adjusted EBITDA as a metric. They are not a software business. Um, they're in the. They are have very clearly made physical retail a big pillar of their strategy. They also brag. I mean, they brag as they should about the new product rollouts that they have all the time, which that's great. However, that means depreciation is a very real expense for you. So you shouldn't be backing that out if you've got the newest model of glasses. And you've got some of the old glasses on the shelf. You're pro- and you you're selling the new glasses for the same price that you would have sold the old ones. The the value of the old ones is lower. That that's the depreciation. Very like it's, it's there. So, uh, I don't like the fact that they back that out. Additionally, they give out stock like it's candy. So the adjusted EBITDA figure is nowhere near the true uh, claim on profits that shareholders are getting, um, or the profits that shareholders could claim.
1: Yep, that's a good summary. Almost um, my highlights. I think Warby Parker looks to be pretty clearly on the right side of a uh, you know innovators dilemma battle, and for what, what you, that is, is just why do you say that? Because you have the legacy model where you have okay, the the old ones that have the ecosystem that are charging whatever 10x of what it takes to make these glasses. And they have extremely long profit, strong profit pools, and they have a really strong moat, like we mentioned, because of basically Luxottica and some of the other players. Now, Warby Parker comes in, kind of innovates with their business model, um, is able to offer products for a cheaper price with, you know, solid. Um, they haven't generated consistent cash flow, but their gross profits are pretty good. They have it. They claim a contribution margin that I think is fairly legit. And they've said so far that the legacy players have not been willing to, or are unable because of the ecosystem they're stuck in to lower their prices. Which I believe that's that's innovators' dilemma right there. So I think they're on the right side of this. They, I guess they haven't proven consolidated cash flow, but it looks like they can be profitable by offering much lower prices. Um, it seems like a perfect recipe. If they can continue with this current model to continually gain market share. Now we talked about the problems with management and maybe their just capital allocation in general. But I I feel pretty confident if they can continue with this and uh, the competitive landscape is the same as it'll be. They're going to continue growing market share. Now I also like the unit economics. I think that's a highlight. It looks solid. They've been consistent um, and with all the adjacent products that they're starting to offer, which I would kind of count as mobile vision tests and try on, they have the actual stores, they have contacts and they have eye exams. It's going to be harder for other e-commerce eyeglass companies to compete or even start at the same playing field. So I think on both ends of the spectrum, there's a, a lot to like there. But now with low lights, um, we talked about the compensation structure. Don't need to hit that again. Ryan hit that nicely. The other low i have is the looming threat of augmented reality glasses from the, as being the next big consumer electronics product. We know for certain that Meta, Apple, and Alphabet are working on them. If they go mainstream, what happens to Warby Parker's business? They become a reseller. Maybe Apple would buy them but i doubt they need them to succeed i think that is a huge low white for me uh, but yeah all right let's move into bull case ryan what do you think needs to happen for good shareholder returns here
0: yeah so i'll just put some numbers on it let's say their active customers grow at 15% a year for the next 5 years their average revenue per customer increases by a high single-digit percentage each year. So, let's go with 7%. I believe it's been north of 10% in recent years. It was 12% in 2021. Um, but and then, and then they reach a free cash flow margin of 10%. Uh, that's all, let's say in year five, that would result in about $155 million in free cash flow, valued at 20 times. That's a $3.1 billion market cap, a little more than a double from today's market cap.
1: Probably eighty. I mean, probably a lot less with SBC, but still. I mean, if you back that out, it'd still be nice returns.
0: Yeah, it would be good returns. However, I think a lot has to go right for that to happen, especially on the margin side. pre cash they Would you have ten percent? I think they have to cut a lot of costs to make that a real, uh, to make themselves truly profitable.
1: Yeah. Is Not that all that their costs
0: would, they can just get rid of.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, especially if they're growing sh- store count. Yes, but. I don't know if it would be a bad thing if they were free cash flow and neutral while growing their share count fairly aggressively, if they continue to get good you know, returns on invested capital.
0: I just, I see it as a real risk of whether or not they can be free cash flow or cash flow neutral while investing in the store count. Yeah. Because I mean, they pay their, it sounds like they pay their optometrists a lot. Um, it sounds like they pay their executives a lot and there just seems to be corporate excess.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just like we just covered Chipotle. It seems they don't give an AUV or an average unit volume number, but like Chipotle or not,
0: sorry, Warby Parker needs to drive more customers to their stores. You could, they could probably be cash flow positive if they stop paying their board so much.
1: Well, yeah, I think some of it might be SBC. I, I don't have the exact details, but yeah, their board is like eight members and they'll get paid a lot. Um, all right. My bull case, fairly simple. They continue on their current path. And they get to about 10% true operating margins. They are guiding for 20% adjusted EBITDA margins, but given their stock-based compensation and true depreciation, I think it's a conservative number uh, to go with about 10% operating margins. Now, free cash flow would be probably similar once store expansion slows down, but we already talked about how they might be having lower free cash flow as they reinvest for growth. Now, at current prices, if they continue on this you know, 20% revenue growth. Um, and they get that margin expansion. I mean it's pretty easy to see where you know you get solid shareholder returns even with 3% dilution a year. Um, all right, bear case, what do you have? Uh,
0: they aren't able to get near let's say they keep hemorrhaging money or, or burning cash. I think raising raising more cash is going to be difficult in this environment for them. Uh, they probably don't have maybe some private, or pseudo private equity or pseudo venture capital firms that could help like give them some convertibles or something, but they, I mean, they are current, they have two and a half years with their current burn rate and they doesn't seem like that's slowing. Yeah. It's accelerated over the last year.
1: Well, yeah, but they, we'll see what happens in a full year. We'll see. Yeah. It hasn't looked great last quarter, but, when they don't have any COVID excuses, we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah, that's true. All right.
1: Uh, let's see. My bear case, two come to mind. First, the stock-based conversation that we talked about really keeps them from generating true profits for shareholders, even if they you know, keep stating, oh, we're just an EBITDA profitable or blah, blah, blah. Second, like I mentioned, sometime this decade, Apple officially launches their AR lenses and they crush the traditional eyeglass market. Just look at what happened with the watch market when the Apple watch went mainstream, everything that wasn't um, way more expensive than uh, Apple watch got crushed.
0: The non-luxury market. Uh, you sure? Yeah. The, yeah, I think that's a realistic bear case. Uh, more or less interested.
1: I wanted to be more interested, but with the management team, I have to be less interested. I actually had, a lot to like about the business model and i do like this industry because it's durable so that was the main highlight for me i do like that durable combined with the kind of innovators dilemma thing that we discussed earlier however i have to be less interested unless um the entire executive team goes
0: yeah i i am less interested as well i I guess I'm starting to come around to the idea that, yeah, they're probably on the right side of the innovator's dilemma. And part of that is simply just that other companies charge too much for glasses and they're probably unwilling to sacrifice their profits uh, to lower prices. So, and they haven't so far. So there's nothing to show that, you know, and Warby Parker is a huge threat and they
1: haven't yet. So no reason to think it won't.
0: I just, happen tomorrow. I just don't like businesses that are run like private Growth, venture capital. Well, you businesses. don't like businesses that are run badly for shareholders. <laughs> it's yeah. That's simple. It's very true. And okay. So I, I know we went through a lot of numbers there on that bull and bear case. Since if you're listening, you're a subscriber, you can go and check that stuff out in the drive to see it more visually. And the newsletter. Yeah. And the newsletter. It's a little easier to digest in that format. We want,
1: time. yeah. We want the newsletter and the drive to be in conjunction with how these are uh, listened to. So you can either listen to this show first. Um, And then read the newsletter or read the newsletter and then listen to the show. doesn't matter to us, but we think it's really useful because that's what we do ourselves to combine both of these discussion and the written work. All right. Stock for next week. Ryan, it is your turn. What do you got for us?
0: We are going to be covering Uber next week. You and I uh, don't really see eye to eye on Uber, actually.
1: At least I think so. We haven't. That may change after we look at the financials, but... It's been pure, well, pure headline uh, opinion yeah. so far, but yeah. Yeah. All right. Uber should be a fun one. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. Remember to check out the newsletter. We all constantly harp on that, but since we're going into launch mode, um, you know, we want to make sure everyone is on board. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital and Arch Capital clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.